from the north citizens of the globe welcome today we bring you a fresh guest but revisiting a familiar topic indeed we bring you three hits in one nazis ufos and free energy with a dash of consciousness teasing on top one of the first attempts to bring attention to deglock as far as the anglophone world concerns, was the book The Hunt for Zero Point, which, although is not a novel, has that feel of a hectic thriller walking you through the best available evidence for covert advanced technology by terrestrial black projects. Although the book doesn't push a specific verdict, it does provide ample food for your own thought, exactly how we prefer it here at the Forum, daring to peek beyond the narrow constraints of a contemporary overtone window in matters which truly is beyond certainty anyway. Now, the reason such a book could be written in the first place is because of the special position the author found himself in the decades up to the book's release, while he was gathering information. I'm referring, of course, to Nick Cook, who had access to many dark corridors of the military-industrial complex, and have met most of who's who in the field of UAPs and exotic tech. So let's learn his bio. Nicholas Julian Cook hails from London and went to the University of Exeter between 78 and 82, where he graduated with honours in Oriental Studies. He started early as a journalist, first working as technology reporter between 83 and 86 for Interavia International Defence Review, covering all aspects of the international aerospace industry and global analysis. Between 87 and 05, he worked for the world's premier defense journal, Jane's Defense Weekly, eventually as a senior editor, writing and commissioning feature articles and news stories, whilst continuing to work as a freelance aerospace consultant and contributor to the journal up to 08. In 05, he founded Dynamics Limited, working with innovating solutions in energy, environment and aerospace, where he was CEO up onto 15. He's still a freelance analyst and consultant in the aerospace, defense and high technology fields. In 20, as a response to the pandemic, he launched a call to action for cross-sector solutions to global challenges fueled by the power of aerospace and defense sector science and technology. Cook won numerous awards for his reporting, among other four for Aerospace Journalist of the Year from Royal Aeronautical Society. Many of his exclusive stories for Jane's also made headlines around the world. Over the years, he's published content in many guises as articles for magazines, online, in books, for TV and for websites. 
He's been a TV commentator and analyst on technology, aerospace and defense fields, providing expert views for such outlets as Financial Times, New York Times, BBC and Sky. His media work also includes broadcast and filmmaking with long-form documentary films for Discovery, Learning Channel and History Channel, among others. The documentary Billion Dollar Secret in 99 followed his investigation into classified U.S. military spending and experimental aircrafts mistaken for UFOs. And in 05 he wrote and presented the documentary UFOs, The Secret Evidence, known as An Alien History of Planet Earth in the U.S. But above all, he is a best-selling author of both fiction and non-fiction with more than 20 books in his own name and as a ghostwriter. Several of his works made various bestseller lists. His first novel, Angel, Archangel, was published in 89. His one bestseller, The Hunt for Zero Point, which today's program revolves around, made number one on the Amazon non-fiction list and number three on the overall charts. It details Nick's decade-long investigation into efforts to crack the holy grail of aerospace propulsion, namely anti-gravity technology and the heretical idea that it's buried under decades of secret military development. Another book worthy of mention is the 18 non-fiction Monopoly Blues, which is a true story of his co-author's parents' secret work with SOA in Italy during World War II. Nick is multilingual, commanding fluently French, Italian and Arabic, and has always had a passion for history, especially World War II. Indeed, as a boy, he was brought up on stories, including of family members, many of whom had fought in its famous battles. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Nick. Thank you very much, Al. Oh, I'm so happy to have you on my show. And I even <laughs> I even put on the camera just to say hello. Very good. Because we're not going to use cameras, you know, so. Sure. And I was experimenting with backgrounds. I could actually take fake backgrounds. That's amazing. I've never seen that before. Pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Yeah, I've not tried it on Skype, but I have on Zoom. Yeah, I, I just had to put off the UFO background. Now it's my actual background. <laughs> so you didn't think I was in a UFO? <laughs> <laughs> anything Yeah, anything is, as we will discuss today. So this is one of the instances where I haven't read the book of the guests. It's all right. However, I have done many shows on this topic. I'm uh, pretty familiar with uh, much of the stuff you're covering. So I think I can wing it. Good. Well, I'm sure you can. And for the avoidance of doubt, uh, w the book we're talking about is The Hunt for Zero Point, yeah? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's the only book you've done on that topic, isn't it? Well, I've just written a new novel, which is all about consciousness. Oh. So that that's why I asked, because... Um, right. No, no. We, we, you look, we have several shows about that. Okay. Mm -hmm. that, and that book is called The Grid. The Grid. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it, it, it is, it's fiction, but it's very heavily researched right. around, um, around fact. And, and the other thing that possibly I should point out, because it may have some relevance, is that 
I also recently edited and wrote the preface for a, a recently discovered manuscript by the remote viewer Ingo Swan. Oh, wow. And I don't know, I mean, it sounds like you would be familiar with Ingo. Yeah. So I knew Ingo uh, and his family asked me to write this book or rather to, to introduce this book and edit it. Wow. And when we found two lost manuscripts of his and that, that was published in, uh, I think it was August last year. And it's called Resurrecting the Mysterious by me. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll have to address that too, because my listeners are into, I mean, you're obviously a versatile guy. And we ourselves do very many different topics, but both of those topics you mentioned, those other books you mentioned now, would be interesting for my audience. So right. so let's uh, make sure at the end of everything to plug both of those books. When I look at the rest of your stuff, um, I don't believe there's other relevant books, are there? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, let me think. No, I don't think so. Uh, no, it's just it's really those those three. I think because I've, I've had a look at obviously I've had a look at you and mm. I just thought those two other books, the grid and Ingo <laughs> Swan book would be, would be relevant to what you're, uh, what you cover. Absolutely. Absolutely. I tried uh, going to Amazon to see if I could see the index of the book, but uh, to no avail. Pretty old book, by the way, I saw, uh, I think it's four versions and all of them are almost sold out. So <laughs> I hope well, it's will. great. It, 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 it has. We can talk about it. It's had a bit of a revival. I mean, it's 20 ah, years old. Yeah. But it's it sort of the whole Tic Tac thing is sort of, yeah. I think, invigorated interest in it. So, right. yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah. So, no, I'm very excited about this today. Um, we have done a lot about the war. We have even done some stuff on... Um, the Nazi bell, we've done some on free energy and anti-gravity. I don't know if you heard that. So what I'm thinking we'll do is that we're going to talk a little about Igor Witkowski and, of course, the history of this and okay. uh, uh, anything else we can. I actually had one excellent show you really should watch. We made it into a movie called This is the Classified Space Program with the aviation expert Michael Schratz. Brilliant. It's a fantastic uh, show. No exclusive, uh, obscure sources, just mainstream sources. And even in the mainstream, you can prove this thing is real. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, I, I know Michael Schratt. We had some correspondence quite a long time ago. Ah. Um, in fact, I think he even alerted me that he was going to be doing that show with you. Wow. I've not heard it, but I can imagine it was very good. He's a very diligent researcher. So um, mm. all of which tells me that that would have been a great show. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't like to do traditional UFO stuff. First of all, Nobody needs my voice on that, okay? There's a million. Yeah. Uh, second, I'm not that into little green men and extraterrestrial. Not denying that they may exist and all that. I'm just saying it's much more interesting to focus on the human part of the, this equation because, first of all, that's for sure out there. <laughs> sure. Second, that's the only thing we can do anything about. <laughs> yep. And uh, it really has too little attention. So so that's what I like with your... And your background is very interesting too. I'm going to inquire 
some stuff about that which is relevant to the topic. Um, I mean, it's it's not exactly a mainstream field, and um, sure, yeah. Well, we're on the same page. That's fine. I'm, I'm very happy to talk about all of that. Okay, so I've uh, eyeballed your book for <laughs> decades. I mean, like you just told me, it's been out for twenty years although it doesn't feel that long. Oh, yeah. And we've covered um, aspects of what your book does uh, entail, like we have had uh, the story of uh, Igor Witzkowski in a show with uh, Joseph Farrell, and we had uh, Michael Schratt, who you know. But uh, this time we're going straight to the, what you say in England, the horse's mouth. We do. That's very colloquial. <laughs> yes, the horse's mouth. <laughs> Not implying you're the horse, though. But I think it's good because I, I think your book, when it came out, was groundbreaking. So, uh, obviously, my first question to you will have to be, because you're not like, it's not your bread and butter to write about weird stuff. You're actually a mainstream journalist. So, how on earth did you stumble into this obscure field? Well, thank you, first of all, Al, for having me on the show. I'm very excited to be here and to have a chance for a for an hour or two to talk about um, the Hunt for Zero Point, which, as you say, is now, I mean, I have to pinch myself. It's 20 years old, uh, 20 years since it came out. But there'd been about 10 years worth of research before I actually committed it to uh committed it to to paper, so to speak. Um, I was, at the time, I was a journalist with a magazine in the UK called Jane's Defence Weekly, which is a very specialised military affairs journal. I was the aerospace editor, and I had a a, a fantastic brief. I mean, the, the, the magazine was international. It was globally ranging. Back in those days, um, I had a fairly unlimited expense account. So in the course of my travels, which a lot of which took me to America. Uh, and this is the 80s and 90s? Yeah, I joined Jane's in 1986. And so predominantly, this was sort of the late 80s and during the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I found myself walking the corridors of the Pentagon and... These, you know, big aerospace contractors like Lockheed Martin and Boeing. And I just realized I was in this sort of very privileged position. Hmm. And James had a very good name and I was able to ask pretty much any question I liked. So one day I just sort of said to myself, look, you know, you won't be here forever. Um, You're talking to all of these really knowledgeable insiders you know what's the one thing nick that you would really like to know that's sort of slightly outside your brief and and that thing i decided was uh, i'd like to know what what the pentagon's biggest secret was mm. and i sort of deduced that the biggest secret would probably be some breakthrough energy or propulsion source so for sort of 10 years whilst going about my job I just kept my eyes and my ears open and I asked questions and bit by bit I began to build up a picture about the anti-gravity story that went into the hunt for zero point. But I I don't suppose that could have been easy. I mean, first off, they are skeptical to journalists. Back then, nowadays, there's no real journalists left, at least not in mass media, but they were uh, still afraid of journalists back then, and uh, although you could say 
although already then they had friendlies, like if you were embedded with the troops in uh, the war zones, they, they would trust you because they knew you were really just a PR agent for them. And yeah, off the record, they could probably tell you a thing or two, but sure. go with the biggest secret. I mean, who? and then again, there's also the problem that not everybody knows. So I'm, I'm just curious because this is a very original and intriguing angle into the matter, what you're sharing with us. So I'm just wondering how you were thinking about this, how you went about uh, this, and, like, did you have any inkling who to ask and how to ask it? Well, just touching on what you said, I mean, Jane's was in this sort of strange and rarefied position because, on the one hand, it was that trusted um, intelligence source for the military. Mm. So Jane's did have this kind of very privileged position where we had great access i could interview anyone really from sort of the secretary of defense on downwards and i just in the course of my job as i said i found myself in all of these places that was just a regular part of my beat mm. so uh the moment you've actually decided or determined that you're going to do something i mean at least in my in my case, I mean, I'm a relentlessly curious person. Mm. So, uh, and and it was too, Al, back in a time, as you say, when journalism was very different from what it is today. Mm. And it, it, it was a time I had to also be very cautious because the question that I was asking or the, or the, 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 the issue that I was investigating, which was breakthrough energy and propulsion, mm. was not as accepted as it is today. In fact, it was a very taboo subject. It was closely aligned with the whole UFO discussion. Mm. There was no uh, real discussion at all about anything like anti-gravity. But yet, we were just entering a very secret time in the history of aerospace development. It was a time when, for example... Reagan's uh, black projects were beginning to appear you know, mm. in the mid 80s, early to mid 80s. These secret aircraft like the stealth fighter uh, and prototypes for sort of stealth bombers and things were beginning to fly in the Nevada desert and the southwest of the United States. So it was a sort of heady, strange mix of classified aerospace technology which i had a legitimate interest in mm. and a duty to report on for the magazine and at the same time there was the beginnings of a sort of ufo kind of law l-o-r-e that was coming into play which made it very dangerous to report on these subjects and so it was a bit of a tightrope you had to walk that tightrope very carefully because if you fell off either side, you were going to do yourself and the magazine that you worked for a great deal of reputational damage. Yeah, but did you use the angle of UFOs at all or UAPs, as they call it in the military? Uh, I mean, you will risk being ridiculed uh, if you, not from the insiders, but those who have no clue would ridicule or think you're a cook. Yeah. And uh, actually, maybe the insiders would do too, because they want to talk about it. So did you avoid uh, using the, the UFO angle and just focus on the uh, more technological angle of exotic energy sources or uh, anti-gravity as a um, uh, pioneer way of uh, going about with these uh, crafts? 
Yeah, I, I totally avoided the UFO <laughs> word. I never once, I don't mm. think, I don't think I brought it up once. Mm. Um, as I say, in the, <laughs> the quotes, polite company that I hung around with in aerospace and defense circles, that would have been an absolute no-no. Yeah, yeah. So, but instead, you know, I was visiting a lot of um, cutting edge research establishments like NASA, for example, the R&D labs of some of these companies. I mean, I was, uh, it was back at a time, bizarrely, when, you know, I was allowed into places like the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. Mm. I, I, you know, you would interview, as I did, you know, senior executives of the Skunk Works actually within the facility of the Skunk Works itself. That would never happen today, mm. but it was it was a slightly different time. But you had to be incredibly careful. I was very careful. And semantics, the language that you used, yeah. was critical. Yeah, you know, if you if you stuck to phraseology and semantics that were acceptable, you know, things like breakthrough propulsion mm. or, or high energy physics, you know, those sorts of expressions you could use in polite company. And people would kind of know, I think, where you were coming from, but mm. they weren't 100 percent sure. And as I say, when I was in these places, these cutting R&D establishments like NASA, they were beginning to conduct experiments that were looking at some breakthrough propulsion physics. And um, uh, so there were clues, there were indicators of what was going on. And all I did simply was uh, I maintained my discretion. I was careful, but I followed the threads and the clues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's funny, but what you say there is it's not only true for that line of work that you were in that's a principle a healthy psychological principle you can transfer anywhere you know it's actually boils down to the old adage when in rome <laughs> speak as the romans okay. and so i think uh, it's it's true in in so many areas so you were clever enough to avoid that you said they were starting to experiment with but as you know uh, they have done that for uh, since the 50s and some argue that nasa even used a parallel technology during the apollo missions okay uh, there are some circumstantial evidence for that but of course it's not like beyond doubt or anything it's very hard to prove these things sure but uh, so when you said that they were starting then you mean in the white in the open yeah. in the accessible yeah in mm. the white yeah. and so the book sort of deals, there is a sort of very obvious mirror in the book, you know, on the one side of the mirror, there's the white world. And on the other side of the mirror, there's the black world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I mentioned a moment or two ago, it was a time when there was a huge amount of increasing black world activity um, funded by the Pentagon uh, during the Reagan administration years. And, so, uh, but at the same time, there was this sort of white world activity that was starting to take place in NASA, where they were doing some quite sort of, well, very nerdy investigations into uh, critical gravity-based science. And one of them was, one of these sets of experiments was taking place at a facility called NASA Marshall at Huntsville in Alabama. And they were looking at the capacity of 
capacitors, in fact, spinning capacitors, to affect the uh, the, the the local gravity field. Mm -hmm. And there was a body of research that was carried out in about the mid 1980s for a while, um, stem flowing into the early 90s about uh, whether these spinning su supercapacitors were were able to affect gravity to about uh, sort of three to five percent of of the normal gravitational value. So I, you know, I, I I was looking at that, and that was the white world activity. But the actual story itself, um, as you you've just hinted, Al, uh, goes back further. In fact, I actually pick up the story in the 1950s. Nice when. Um, I was just going about my my kind of um, my business at Jane's. Uh, I had this desire, as I've said, to investigate what I took to be uh, or thought would be the uh, Pentagon's greatest secret, which would be this propulsion, novel propulsion source. And then somebody put on my desk an article at Jane's, which talked about a potential breakthrough in in the mid 1950s in uh, aerospace America, in which all the companies working at the time, so big names like Boeing and Convair and Lockheed and others, were all talking about anti-gravity. Yeah, um, I think it's Michael Schratt, uh, but I think there's several people who have uh, shown even even newspaper copies, prints from that time where they were like in one place they were having a orientation meeting at the university they wanted scientists to come in and work on this and i think they even used the the old term anti-gravity i'm not sure that's the term they use anymore but so the, it, there's been mainstream yeah news about this in the 50s indicating yet that they for sure were onto something and and we'll talk about that but sure, I, sure. I, I just want to go uh, rewind a little because uh you mentioned NASA in the white. Have you? Are you aware that they have launched something called the EM drive? Yes, I am. In fact, I've spoken to the people who have been investigating the EM drive, and it's uh, it's a controversial piece of equipment, as I'm sure you know. Mm. Um, and various investigators seem to swing between, you know, this being a genuine breakthrough and it just being actually a sort of an anomalous readout from a sort of rather anodyne, boring um, experiment. And I don't think that has been definitively decided yet, mm. whether the M drive has a genuine anomalous propulsion effect or whether it is just an anomaly of the data. But, you know, hopefully, yeah, it could be. It could be. I read it as a battle between the gatekeepers and those who want, you know, to take us forward. <laughs> <laughs> in what what sense do you mean because when uh, there is because there will always be naysayers gatekeepers whether you, you know people who who don't want us to proceed either for ideological reasons or for actually being you know being conservative in their attitude of should we come clean come out with some more of this these toys that we are having classified. So there will always be a battle, a disagreement among the powers that be or any branch of the powers that be who who decides things. Sure. And it seems to me that after 50 years, they finally decided to, okay, let's, 
let's get more in the open i mean trump space force i'll read that as a step in that direction and uh, you said that they were experimenting with rotation that's i mean that's uh, as soon as you're into rotation you know (laughs) we're we're entering the scene of anti-gravity and free energy i'm just using those populist terms i know they're not they're poo-pooed on by people who knows about these things but i'm using it i'm representing the people here (laughs) and so i i'll just call it that and so when you have uh rotations or torsion physics as some call it then it's unavoidable i mean you can go back to the late 18th hundred what was his name one of these tesla guys not tesla himself but one of the first people who experimented with rotation and proved the anomalous effects that that gives. Um, are you? Do you know? Probably Michael Faraday. Not Faraday. Not Faraday. But he was a steampunk inventor, um, super famous. I'm just blanking on his okay, name. Well, but he had his rotation experiments where he showed, for example, how you go through the electromagnetic scale. You know, you go through the sound frequencies, the color frequencies. Eventually, you will reach invisibility when it's rotated fast enough and when you have double rotation that's when we we, we we end up in this field that you've explored but okay let's rewind to the 50s so oh of course keel is his name you know who i mean i do yeah 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 so uh, back to so you at some point you realized this there's something to this what was that by the way a gradual awakening or was there something that shocked you some sudden info you were exposed to well as I mentioned, there was this uh, somebody placed this newspaper or it was a magazine article on my desk at Jane's. And it talked about all of these aerospace companies in America that had supposedly made this breakthrough into anti-gravity. Mm. And it, it was intriguing to me because the language that was being used in the article was very familiar to me. It was the language that I had become used to as a defense journalist, you know, that I picked up on every day in my in, in my day-to-day job mm-hmm. so I, I thought well that's strange you know this suddenly takes it out of the uh the sort of the dimension that i was concerned about which was aligned to the whole sort of ufo uh narrative and for a journalist that means becoming a leper uh, you would it was taboo seriously taboo mm. and i would have found myself consigned to um some obscure uh you know uh, department of the um of the company very quickly mm. if i talked about that stuff as i mentioned so but this language in this magazine was intriguing because it was very um uh, respectable it was conventional so i started to research it mm. and as you've alluded to al there were other publications at the time including some which i actually found in the jane's library which also talked about these mid 1950s breakthroughs and that within a few short years you know the all of these companies were saying we expect to have uh you know technology that is 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 working so i thought okay well by the beginning of the 1960s we should have seen this stuff materializing in the the skies at least in america but as we all know unless you count the uh sort of the ufo sightings database there there is nothing none of these companies produced any anti-gravity aerospace vehicles i mean uh otherwise we'd we'd know all about it so um 
at that point, I sort of kicked in the other part of my thinking, which was, okay, uh, I know there's a white world. I know there's a black world. I've, uh, through the whole stealth program, I have investigated at least portions of the black world. So did this breakthrough that these companies were talking about, about anti-gravity in the 1950s, did it go into the black? And that made it for me then a very interesting um, sort of investigation. And the whole thing then assumed a sort of different gear for me. It went from white world into black world. And it became not just a book about uh, technological breakthrough. It became a book about uh, the rights and wrongs of excessive secrecy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Did you meet uh, in your travels? Uh, what, oh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Keeley was the one I was referring to uh, before, but this time I'm referring to a chap who worked in the aviation and especially classified. He was um he was drawing, drawing the stuff that especially the exotic stuff that they were having uh, meetings and presentations about. Okay. And he came out some years ago, but oh, I can't remember his name. Do you know who, who I mean? Does it ring a bell? Uh, I don't. Uh, I No, I don't, I'm afraid. Let's see here. Could it be, hang on a second, could it be Mark McCandlish? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's who. Okay. Yeah. Did you ever meet him? No, I never met him. Okay. And uh, when you became aware of him was after he came out? I... When did I, I saw some drawings done by him I, and that's what sort of triggered the memory. Um, mm. But I never, I never met him. I, I think he worked for, he worked, as you say, he was an illustrator in the aerospace industry, but, but we never met. I'm aware of him, but we never met. Okay. 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 So uh, I have to uh, come clean about the thing and that's, I haven't read your book partly. Right. Because, yeah. <laughs> but Not- it's going to kind of amputate some of my, uh, potential contributions in this conversation. Fine. But, like, because, like I told you, it's uh, partly to do with your book being very hard to get. Folks, uh, if you go to Amazon, which you shouldn't, that's Jeff Bezos, but if you do, you'll see at least three versions, and all of them say, let's see, only one left in stock, order soon. Only two left in stock, order soon. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we'll get back to that uh, at the end here. So hard to get this book, but I've read the contents and it's obviously relying on um, uh, some of the work of Igor Witkowski. So could you tell me how you discovered that angle? And also, isn't it true that even before you wake up to this exotic energy thing, you were already into World War Two? Yeah. As an interest field, right? Oh, yeah, it's always been an interest of mine. And mm. so uh, at one point in the book um, or in the research for the book, I realized that in order to sort of uh, go back to the origins or the roots of this story, that I needed to check out the initial sort of sightings um, reports of uh, unidentified flying objects during World War II. I mean, that was a sort of fairly seminal moment in the history of unexplained aerial phenomena. So I go back to World War II. Uh, I talk to various people. I look at various original sources. 
I'm trying to find a critical piece of evidence that says that the Germans, the Nazis during the Second World War had invented what we would commonly describe as the flying saucer. Mm-hmm. If I could find that one smoking gun piece of evidence, then, hey, you know, job done. I could go home. I mean, that, Job done. Give him the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Everybody has tried that. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, and I, I rather foolishly thought that it would be quite easy, actually, because I just right. thought rather naively that a lot of evidence must have been overlooked. But I went back into uh, all the original sources, as I said, and I could find there was plenty of circumstantial evidence of the Germans having invented unconventional aircraft. But there was no evidence, no reliable evidence to say that they had achieved a breakthrough propulsion uh, technology. Right. So so when you say, for example, if you have uh, Victor Schauberger's, you could safely call that unconventional. But problem is, although it looks uh, like a duck and quacks like a duck, it actually isn't uh, energized as, <laughs> as a UFO because it relies on jet propulsion, right? So problems like that? Yeah. Uh, well, in fact, I, I went to see the Schauberger family. Uh, they very generously allowed me to view parts of the Schauberger archive that had not been viewed before. And there was an incredibly um, interesting set of archive papers held by them, which definitively showed that Schauberger had been suborned into a secret SS run technology operation that was looking at um, energy and propulsion breakthroughs. So that part was clear. Uh, What was not clear, and in fact, to my mind, uh, just wasn't there at all, was that this effort had resulted in an actual breakthrough. There was no evidence for that at all. Yeah, but hang on, hang on. Wouldn't we expect that if they did discover evidence for that, that would be so classified, it would obviously not be a part of the provenance you had access to? Uh, Yeah, it would be classified. But, you know, one thing I'd learned in the investigations that I'd done into secret aircraft, you know, like the F-117 stealth fighter, Mm -hmm. was that... These things are incredibly hard to completely hush up. And here I'm talking about something that was developed in the late 1970s and during the 1980s. You know, the stealth fighter crashed a couple of times, resulting in all kinds of cover-ups which were not wholly successful. In fact, you know, you couldn't have found a more classified program at that time. And yet uh, stories of that Uh, of that aircraft and of that program all leaked into both Jane's and Aviation Week and all of those specialist Mm. journals that were looking at black aircraft projects at the time. So I'm thinking, you know, back in the 1940s, when the rigors of classification and secrecy were not as rigorous as they are today or even 40 years ago, that that would be incredibly hard just to blanket, keep quiet. And I still hold to that view. I don't think that you would suppress 
something as big a, as big as that, you know, if Schauberger had made a breakthrough, I don't think that would be possible. So I subscribe to the view that, which actually I thought was interesting enough, which was this guy had been pulled into a, a top secret SS run unacknowledged effort uh, to produce a, an energy and propulsion breakthrough. Yeah. But unfortunately, there was no evidence that it achieved that mm. breakthrough. Mm. But historically, I thought the fact that the SS had a program at all yeah, yeah. was actually pretty interesting in and of itself. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, he wouldn't be their only card. I mean, uh, sure. Yeah. But uh, and before we... And, and actually, we can come back to it, and this may not be the thread that you want to pursue right now, but the thing that took me to Germany and Schauberger was investigating a guy who at that point, 25 some years ago, hadn't really entered the historical consciousness of World War II that he has today. And this was someone called um, SS General uh, Kamler, Hans Kamler. So, yeah, you were one of the first to be onto him. That's right. Now he's a household name. Back then, he's a he household was name now, absolutely. Yeah. But mm. at the time, he really wasn't. But mm. Kamler was interesting to me because he assumed this status that no one else has ever assumed in the world of classified technology, at least to my mind, which was here was a guy who had been vested by Hitler with power and knowledge over all of Germany's secret weapons development at the end of the Second World War. And lo and behold, what happens to this guy? But he disappears off the face of the earth um, just when the uh, the Allies are about to overrun Germany in May 1945. In fact, there were six differing accounts of his death, which for me was a real red card. It meant that someone had spirited this guy into yeah. an, a, yeah. a sort of uh, a debriefing program. That happened. That just so people know, every time there's like a hundred different deaths, then you know these these are one of the guys who they needed to extract. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was a surefire pointer to me that this yeah. guy needed to. To be tracked and followed. And it was following Kamler that took me into Germany to meet the Schauburgers and also uh, to meeting Igor Witkowski. Okay, uh, we'll get to Witkowski too. Uh, there's so many by teams by what you say that I want to explore some of them on the way. So uh, just quick re rewinding to Schauberger. Okay. So people know that after the war, he wasn't done with the classified world because then the predecessor to CAA uh, got hold of him and... Uh, I think Dolan told us about this. Dolan actually touched one of his, <laughs> his crafts, his flying saucer crafts. Yeah. So uh, at least they have two, I think. So uh, the, just the fact that the Americans was interested in, in him after the war tells me that, well, there may still be something he did that is, well, relevant to this. And uh, you said uh, something very interesting. You said that, it's hard to 100% suppress these things. And I kind of agree. And you refer to like, for example, accidents happen, a crash. And I agree again. And if you look at crashes uh, with exotic technology, it's so interesting that this happened already uh, right after the war. Like, for example, most probably one of the most famous cases today is Roswell. But what they do when that happens is, of course, it's being spinned into the UFO 
black hole. And in fact, Dr. Farrell, I don't know if you know this, but he has launched a very interesting hypothesis. In his book, Roswell and Reich, he says that from what he has uh, dug up, that there seems to be a plan that goes like this. And that's, let's, on the one hand, introduce the normal debunking stuff. Oh, swamp gas. Oh, uh, weather balloon. Nothing to see here. Move on, right? That's one part of the dichotomy. And then you kind of please and pacify the materialists, the, the skeptics. Then you introduce the alien UFO little green man from Mars kind of thing. There you, you call it sheep hurdle there. You distract the believers, the, the, those who don't accept anything the authority says, but have a vivid fantasy or we, I, I want to believe, etc. X files, put them in there. Yeah. And if the, if the truth is something Trivial in one way, but still a hot topic, like it has to be classified. For example, let's say there are still Nazis around in 47 doing experiments and crashing within the American border. That's uh, in 47. You couldn't come clean about that if that is what happened. And so that's a very interesting hypothesis. You make two kind of... um, distractions and both are leading away from uh, the, the truth and one of the reasons I think he may be onto something is that right after his book came out another book came out which was kind of sanctioned by the uh, deep state and that was I forgot her name uh, but she kind of said exactly the same as Farrell only she Annie. said he, what's that? Annie Jacobson. Yeah. But her conclusion was, it, it's true, it's true, it's true, but it's not the Nazis, it's the Soviets. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, my God. I, I mean, I don't, I, as you can hear, I don't buy into that one second. The Soviets were retarded compared to Americans back then. They got, the, yeah, they got Nazi scientists, but they got the Class B scientists. Any views on this? I mean, it's it's not within your kind of topic but i'd still like to hear your thoughts about this well i'm fascinated by the whole disinformation angle because i mean it is a critical backdrop to this whole story mm. as you've just mentioned and um you know i uh i was acutely aware of it as i went on this journey um there uh yeah i've, I've you know i've not really looked in any depth at the Roswell story, but you can see that there are elements around it which have fluctuated over the years. And, uh, yep, sure, you know, you introduce, as you say, a sort of, you know, varying levels of sort of paradoxical information which makes it very hard or or, uh, the kind of area that sort of, you know, most journalists sane-minded people so-called would want to avoid Hmm. that's part of the territory of of the disinformation territory um i think what is interesting to my mind is that that you know that worked very successfully for 40 or 50 years but in the last five years i don't think that's working anymore you know the more we get into and particularly actually in the post-trumpian post-truth era Mm. you know that whole you know the whole question of you know what is truth what isn't Mm. has kind of changed the rules of the game and 
you know, now if I look at things like uh, the U.S. Navy's admission in 20, well, actually the Pentagon's admission in 2020, that unidentified aerial phenomena, uh, formerly known as UFOs, as you and I know, that they, that they exist. The lid is off this whole disinformation um, area now. It, it is a much more complicated picture. And it is very difficult now to, um, uh, well, first of all, to get to the truth. I mean, the truth is a much more elusive commodity. Mm. But secondly, it is more difficult for those disinformation gurus, you know, whether they work for an intelligence agency or anyone else, to, um, to, to employ conventional disinformation techniques to suppress a story. They have to go even further now to um, to obscure the truth and actually to my mind i think they've largely given up yeah um i mean if people don't know it it's it's not just that when uh, the to the stars people i mean the, their project they had some insiders coming out then there was uh, harry reed and uh, uh, his cooperation with uh, this oligarch, I forgot his name, Skinwalker Ranch guy. One, uh, yeah, Robert Bigelow. Bigelow. And, and, and the things that were happening in the press there. And then there's is the fact that the mainstream press in our time where it's so controlled even came, came out, came clean about some of these things. But there's also like, uh, yeah, like you said, Pentagon has issued something. Then there's the... I think it's Brennan, one of these ex-CIA directors, recently came out and said, yeah, yeah, it's real. Uh, I think it was Brennan, one of the, or Clapper, maybe Clapper, one of these people who should be in jail anyway, in in my view. And the Florida congressman for the Republicans, oh, what was his name again? Uh, Like a Spanish uh, original guy. He was trying to be... Marco Rubio. Rubio, that's it. He he came out and uh, I think he's like demanding some answers. So everybody's jumping on this bandwagon now. It's like it's become a legitimate kind of thing, which is so weird that it happens in my lifetime. If, I never and, would expect it. And if sorry, I don't want to interrupt your train of thought. No, no, go on. But I mean, that is one of the weird things for me that you know, twenty five years ago, I, I operated in a really taboo area of journalism. As we've discussed earlier, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't reveal for a moment what I was doing for fear of the reputational damage that that would inflict principally on the magazine that I worked for. Nowadays, um, it is, we are in a completely different environment. And it has surprised me, in fact, that this whole debate about Tic Tac about the reports to Congress that you've mentioned that the Pentagon has to provide by the middle of this year, 2021, mm. uh, revealing what it knows about unidentified aerial phenomena. Yeah, actually, what that has done, strangely, is resurrect all the research that went into the hunt for zero point into a sort of rather strange kind of common currency now, mm. um, which I'm delighted to be talking about again because I haven't talked about it for 20 years. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it, 
Well, I talked about it when it first came out, yeah, and I, yeah, yeah. I got some rather strange looks from people saying, why have you written this book? This is in 2001. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly, for the next sort of 20 years, or maybe 18 years, it wasn't talked about. And then for the last year and a half or so, I've been doing nothing but <laughs> talk about this book again. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's good. But, you know, you were very unlucky with the timing, because you said you've been researching it how long? Seven years? What was it? Well, it was about seven or eight years, maybe maybe even ten. I mean, wow. that order. Yeah, because when you because in two thousand and one, what you couldn't foresee is that a dramatic change in, you know, as we could call it social engineering, maybe, but uh, the whole society, you know, in in the nineties was the last fresh breeze of freedom in the public and then started the national security state in 2001, which has obviously just become worse and worse and worse. So that was poor timing on your part. That Terrible timing. Right? It, it actually, the book actually came out two days, I thought maybe it was the day before 9-11. <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> so... Uh, it was it was from that point of view it was disastrous yeah. but it, 9/11 had a had a very interesting impact also on my journalistic career because all the access as a british citizen that i'd enjoyed in america up to that point mm-hmm. kind of disappeared mm-hmm. so i could no longer go and visit a lot of these quasi semi-classified facilities like the skunk works that I'd been going to visit before or have access to those, um, you know, same kinds of individuals. So it made that it made my day job much more difficult as well. Don't you think your book also contributed to that or? Well, I thought, you know, I thought it would. I mean, I joke in the book um, that uh, when it's, you know, when it's finally published, mm. I will probably never eat lunch <laughs> in, uh, at the, in the aerospace industry again. Yeah. And so I actually flagged uh, that concern in the book itself. Mm. But I was really surprised when it came out that, yeah, that, I mean, certainly there were some people who gave me some strange looks, as I've said. Mm-hmm. But actually, for all of them, there were people who came up to me. I mean, aerospace engineers who came up to me and said, Thank you, because until you wrote this book, we have not been able to talk about the things that you talk about in the book. So in a sense, you have legitimized what was until now a really taboo subject. And I I think it was in about 2005 that I went back to Lockheed Martin and the Skunk Works, and they are out in the desert in Palmdale, California. Mm. And I sat down for a briefing. I was meant to be, um, I was meant to be interviewing them uh, for a story uh, <laughs> that I was working up for Jane's. Yeah. And instead, well, actually, well, I did that piece, and I got the story that I I needed yeah, okay. in the magazine. Mm. But then afterwards, for about half an hour a bunch of program managers who were meant to be briefing me on what they were doing mm. wanted to ask me about the hunt for zero point. So again, I thought, well, this is really strange because everything has sort of come full circle. And so it was a, it was a mixed reaction amongst the establishment. Some of them thought it was very heretical, but others were quite glad that it had been brought into the light. Yeah, this uh, this harmonizes with experience others have had. Uh, first, let me mention the very controversial figure that is Richard Hoagland. But whatever people think of him, 
he did. He was affiliated with NASA originally, and he has many contacts there. And he's always reported how there's like half of them are for this kind of exposure, half of them are against. But um, you also have um, uh, Mr. Um, He's been written on the Atomic Program of the Nazis. I've interviewed him. His name is Carter Heydrich. Yeah, yeah. He has experienced a lot of... Uh, I mean, he's even had lectures in uh, some of these facilities where... I forgot the names, but where they are doing this kind of technology. And he, he reported to me that so many people come and support him and his work. And what, one of the things he's proven is, uh, and, and it's kind of dovetailing with your work, but he's been uh, you know researching that they had an atomic bomb program. Yeah, I've read his book. Yeah. You read his book, so you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Martin. No, no. So we're going to go to that now, but just one quick question before we get there. You mentioned you've been in Skunkworks. You never met Boyd Bushman, did you? I did. In fact, actually, <laughs> okay. I, I interviewed Boyd Bushman. It was really Boyd's coming out was when I issued, uh, I interviewed him for a documentary that I made for the Discovery Channel in 1999, I think it came out. And that was the first time that Boyd Bushman really went public. And so I did met- he mention UFOs and Little Green Man then? No, not really. Uh, he uh, he did mention um, some anti-gravity work that he'd been doing whilst a senior scientist at Lockheed Martin, mm. which was why I'd gone to talk to him. And so uh, I had a, yeah, I, I knew Boyd very well. Um, I hmm. then met and spoke with him several times uh, more. I probably was talking to him uh, right up until his death, actually. Wow. Yeah, because um, we have um, Mr. A chap who, oh, I forgot his name, who interviewed Boyd Bushman. He's, he's been, uh, David Serida. And there, uh, I kind of read it like maybe, maybe he had to give this info because he came out, he came clean about things. But there he was like talking about, in fact, I wonder if he was showing him a figure that he claimed was an alien. I, I, I forgot, but he went that route. And one of the things I think made your book popular among uh, so-called polite circles, you know, informed circles, is the fact that you didn't touch the alien UFO angle, that you yep. tried to keep a sober, uh, on-to-the-point perspective on this. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, it was a very deliberate and conscious decision on my part mm. was not to go down the UFO route, mm. but it was to stick to that portion of the spectrum, which I considered I could investigate, which was, a you know, comparatively quite a small uh, portion of the UFO spectrum. But it was the man-made aspect of it, even if it was deeply classified. Um, that was an area that I felt that I could make a contribution to. Um, At that time, 20-something years ago, I did not feel I could make a legitimate or valid contribution to the other, whatever that is, maybe Mm. 80% of the UFO spectrum, Mm. um, such as it is. So I I was determined to stick to, if you like, stick to what I know. Mm. And what I knew was the aerospace and defense industry. I knew it very well. I'd, I'd worked reporting on it by that stage for 
about a decade. Um, and of course, I continued to right up until about 2005, which is when I sort of left to go on to do other things. Hmm. Well, that's very clever of you and, and, and very uh, good of you to do too, because there's too little uh, like that kind of research. And, you know, the problem is if everything that's unknown is thrown into the same bag, you're going to have, uh, yeah. you, you, it's not going to take us very far. We, what we need are detailed, in my view, angled uh, investigations on, on specific points. And I think personally, and I know many listeners don't agree with me, but personally, my impression without having the answers, of course, is that most of the weirdest reports, you know, when we come to creatures and stuff, it's really, I think it's more metaphysical experiences than actual 3D physical stuff. And um, okay. there's many rumors about alien bodies, but they never pin out when you really look into it. And I wouldn't be surprised if the entire, if the physical aspect of the entire uh, UFO phenomenon actually boils down to something as boring and sober as man-made exotic technology. I know it doesn't spike the endorphins to all the <laughs> listeners when when that is, but I think if that's real, that's actually what's going on, and it's super fantastic in and by itself, and so important to get exposed because, like Richard Dolan says, it creates two different civilizations. You have the Stone Age cavemen, which is us, the public, and then you have those who have access to this and are laughing all the way to the stars. So I'm glad you had that perspective. Now, I want to ask well, you, tell you... Just before yep. we leave that, Al, yep. I'll tell you something, which is that I wish, actually, that the, 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 sort of the whole UFO subject area was that simple. I mean, if it was as simple as the 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 uh, the way that i portrayed it in the hunt for zero point mm. it would be a very um linear kind of um investigation mm. but it unfortunately it's not and and whilst i didn't pay it much attention at the time you know as we mentioned a while or so back mm -hmm. because thanks to the pentagon and the us navy which over the last couple of years has you know progressively been admitting to the fact that it is confronted by unidentified aer unidentified aerial phenomena it can't account for yeah that because of that the lid has been taken off this whole subject and people like me are now much more able to dive into that area of research should they want to 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 take a look at it and, you know, there's a guy that I admire uh, very much in the UFO field. His name may be familiar to you. It's Jacques Vallée. Oh, yeah. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Jacques is uh, a fascinating individual. I, I had the pleasure of meeting him and uh, talked to him about some of his work. But, you know, Jacques' theory on the UFO phenomenon I think is is profound. And, and that is that if it is as simple 
as merely being about extraterrestrials and aliens, mm. then it is actually pretty dull and boring because that's not what the the data seems to suggest. Right. The data seems to suggest that it's a highly complex, mm. multifaceted phenomenon, which probably multidimensional too, and multidimensional as well, mm. Uh, mm. which makes it, of course, endlessly fascinating to so many different people. So and so hard to research too, because where to begin, which angle to go down, right? Absolutely. Which mm. was again why I decided all of those years ago. That you know, I there was no useful contribution I could make to that uh, discussion. But you know, again, I just decided to stick to the bit that I felt that I could make some inroad into, and that was as a, you know, as we've been discussing, is the man-made, secret, classified aircraft portion of of this uh, whole discussion area. Yeah, and I want to make a disclaimer because we have uh, different kind of people in our audience, and I. I want to explain to those who get provoked by my previous statement, I'm not denying the uh, potential existence of something like grace, for example, although my personal view is that those are non-physical beings or entities or whatever. I'm not denying that people may get abducted or that uh, they may have seen. Sure. But in my view, where I'm standing now, if I'm going just by the evidence, I think that the physical UFOs... <sighs> No, they're not all terrestrial. Like every, everything comes from uh, American or Russian or, or Chinese labs. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that it's probably Homo sapiens. <laughs> even those that are not from Earth. I mean, it's a can of worms. Let's not even open it. <laughs> I'm just flagging my position. Okay. So to you extraterrestrial fans, yeah, they are still extraterrestrial if they're not from Earth. But I think they are humanoid and... The weirder stuff, I think, is non-physical. I'm not saying I know, so it's just my opinion, and who cares about my opinion anyway? Let's move on. Okay. So, uh, I want you now, if you could, give us an overview of, and of course, if people want details, they just need to get your book. But if you could just give us a overview of, because you, you, you're going back to the 50s, and you're or actually back to the war, and then you're working yourself upwards. I'm thinking, so what are the important time periods in the provenance of this technology, of the de evolution of this technology as far as you've been able to track down? So as I, as I mentioned, it, it, the book actually starts really with that mystery in the mid-1950s with all of those aerospace companies saying, hey, we are on the verge of a breakthrough. I then go forward a little bit into the white world of NASA development and what NASA was looking at in terms of those benchtop experiments into anti-gravity. Uh, from there, I go into some of the physics theory. I go and meet a guy called Dr. Hal Putoff, who went on to advise yeah. uh, Tom DeLonge and TTSA mm -hmm. and all of those people. I know Hal quite well. Uh, I didn't then, but uh, this was, I met him, I guess, probably uh, around about 1998, 99. And from the physics, I then go into then some of the classified stuff that was going on in aerospace companies like Northrop with the B-2 and Lockheed with the F-117 stealth fighter and where that might have spun out 
into some uh, form of anti-gravity program, but I don't want to, you know, I don't, the book is written in some senses narratively a bit like a thriller. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who wants to pick it up and read it in that vein. Of course. But, you know, uh, suffice to say, there is no evidence that it was cracked in the black world when I looked at it. Mm. And from then it takes a dive backwards, as we discussed into Nazi Germany to evaluate the sort of the strange origins of the whole sort of flying saucer um, discussion. And it then goes for quite a long way then into that secret SS run program that we've been talking about, which not only spawned some sort of strange aerial concepts, but it also uh, was responsible for a secret uh, SS-run parallel atomic bomb program to the conventional Heisenberg-run atomic bomb program. And all of these were run under this uh, mercurial character we mentioned a while ago called SS General Hans Kammler. So uh, it goes, and from there it comes back again into the present day. And I look at some other experiments that have been uh, um, investigated by the Pentagon, uh, and demonstrably so, uh, one was, and actually that was where the narrative then runs back into Boyd Bushman again. Hmm. And then I finally look at a guy called John Hutchison, mm. who was invited by a Pentagon team who I inter- whom I interviewed, and they uh, described how they pumped about $50,000 back in, I think it was the early 80s, into Hutchison's work, which, you know, is a not inconsiderable amount of money back then, into a guy who said he was able to levitate stuff off a laboratory bench. I mean, yeah, I mean people can see that for themselves. He's published a lot of um, um, footage about this. I mean, he's yeah. pretty forward and open. He's, he's the proverbial mad scientist, probably autodidact. He, John is a... He's a wonderful, uh, and, and uh, he won't mind me saying, a uh, wonderful, crazy guy. But uh, he, uh, he's a controversial figure as well. By his own admission, he has not always been completely straight um, with his experiments. He's uh, tweaked some and even faked some. Uh, and that has led to a sort of um, uh, bespoiling of his reputation somewhat in some circles. But I think that, and this is not me saying this but it's the pentagon evaluation team that looked at his work there is real or was real validity in what he was doing he was you know genuinely to them coming up with an enigmatic energy force which they could not explain so it was a sort of interesting way for me to conclude the research of the book you speak of uh, him as if he's dead but he's he's still with us isn't he Oh, John is very much still with us. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. In fact, I think uh, he was emailing emailing me only a couple of days ago. So <laughs> okay. I, I hope he, I hope he very much hope he's still with us. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. The Hutchinson effect. Uh, they've called his. Uh, I, I'm glad you you're tying in modern uh, examples too. There's also this blind guy, American, who had a UFO. What was his name? There was a documentary about him not long ago. Uh, do you touch upon him? Um, I wish I knew who you meant. A blind? Yeah, you, yeah, you probably do know. I don't know if everybody knows he was blind, but I think he went blind or something. He had a remote-controlled anti-gravity disc. Uh, it's his uh, Searl? No, let me think. Oh, John John Searl. I, I John Searl was a Brit. Was a Brit. 
It was a Brit. Uh, was he blind? I don't know. I never met him. Mm. Um, and I didn't look at his work, to be honest. It was it no. was too. There were too many conflicting stories around his work. It was, uh, and for whatever reason, it didn't seem germane to what I was doing. So I, I didn't look at his work. Mm, okay, so it's interesting also that you actually made assessments and you fi- you actually had a filter, uh, you know, in order to. Yeah, I did have a bit of a filter. You know, mm. there was some stuff that was so kind of mired in wacky narrative and law that I just thought it's it's just too hard to pick apart and John Searles was one of those I seem to remember and it just didn't seem sort of apposite to the directions that I was taking in the book so uh, I didn't look at him. Of course one of the disadvantages with taking that necessary kind of quality control attitude is that you will also know that some of the real stuff will be heavily smeared and tainted and uh, you know uh, made leperish by the disinfo so I'm, I'm sure much much good stuff is not possible to touch precisely because of that kind of way to to dismiss it uh, a tactic yeah. they've used for 50 years so yeah yeah you have to be really careful that you mm. don't set the filter too fine that you filter out some of the good stuff mm. so it was a it was a a, a fine line very mm. fine mm. so interesting uh, way of um, uh, you know how your narrative works i was going to say this at the end when we talk about your book but I can just say it now that someone who actually read your book told me that it's kind of like <laughs> the narration is kind of like the Da Vinci Code, only for only for uh, this technology. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I did that deliberately oh, know, wow. because it was, um, it was commissioned as a commercial book. It was not commissioned as a specialist book, mm. but it was you know bought by a mainstream publisher in the UK and a mainstream publisher in the US. And I had written, previously written novels. So I thought, I, I don't want to make this a, a, a boring, geeky story about tech. Mm. I want to make it a story that is accessible to anyone. And the, the way I thought you, I could do that was by employing a narrative. You know, this was my journey. It took me to many interesting places to, to, to talk to many interesting people. Hang, hang on. So the hunt for Sarah Point, actually your hunt, it's referring yeah, to. Mm. It's mine. Mm. And because I thought I can best tell this story through my eyes because I, 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 I enter a very strange landscape. The landscape of the defense reporter is quite strange to begin with. But when you take the hunt, the investigation into the classified world, it becomes deeply interesting. It is suddenly a, 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 a landscape of smoke and mirrors and mm. twists and turns. And I wanted to the reader to experience that as I had experienced it on this journey, which is why I used narrative techniques to uh to to i mean i'm i'm gratified that your contact described it as not unlike the da vinci code because mm. that actually was how it was as i was researching it and all the time i'm having to make value judgments and assessments about the clues that i'm being presented with in order to try and come to some kind of sense about what it all meant mm. uh, what would you say was the most shocking 
discovery or info or, or, or segment in your book or in your journey? Well, I think collectively it was the sort of the Nazi past of this and the role that Kamala had played in uh, the, the, the sort of the high-end German research part of exotic physics investigation, which the, the Germans were involved in. And the corollary to that uh, to that technical story was the very dark and unpleasant story of the Holocaust, uh, against which this research, you know, had been. Uh, it was in that landscape that that this research had had been undertaken, and I found that very disturbing. It was very distressing. I I took the same. I went on a journey through Kamler's technological kingdom, which comprised a huge swathe of Nazi Germany, even in 1944-45, when the Allies were closing in on, on, on the heart of Germany itself. And it comprised an area in southern Poland, which is where I met Igor Witkowski, and went to visit this uh, sort of strange uh, complex in at the Wenceslas mine, where the bell was supposedly uh, tested for a sort of anti-gravity effect. And from there, I went into Austria and the Czech Republic, where Kamla built vast underground complexes in different parts of his kingdom, which was quite separate from the, you could almost describe it, the white world, mm. Nazi aerospace and defense establishment. Uh, and that was a profoundly sort of... Um, unsettling uh, period of the research because of its sort of dark uh, roots. And and so I'd say that was probably the most shocking component of the research. Mm. And as I understand it, they even used um, concentration camp uh, prisoners in as workforce for this classified project. And I mean... If you're one of those poor people, then you, you know you're doomed. You can't let them live afterwards. So that yeah. that would account for no witnesses. It was it, it was it was it was bad, and and they they were used primarily to dig out and construct the um, underground facilities where a lot of the secret uh, research and production went on. And doesn't this explain? Because, oh, Hitler was mad on his last days. And yeah, he probably was. But then you could argue he was always mad. I mean, so what's madness anyway? But however mad he was, he was still tied to reality as far as um, the war effort went. Uh, yeah, he did do some bad calls. and But one of the things they dismissed him with is that he was holding out for this because he was always saying that ah, we have this secret weapon and well, yeah, we're going to come back to, to uh, yeah. we're going to uh, triumph back. Uh, what's the word in English? When you, you've been on your heel and then you push back again. So he was kind of holding out for some kind of hope. And it's been speculated that, that was the atomic bomb. But might, this, might it not actually or maybe also have been this stuff? I I don't think so, Al. I mean, I, as I say, I looked quite hard and deep at the whole German UFO kind of narrative, the the law that was associated with that um, 
with that whole story, you know, which to begin with looks quite compelling in a sort of evidential way. Mm -hmm. But as I went through it all, I could find no evidence at all that the Germans had come up with craft that explained the Foo Fighter sightings in uh, in the late part of the war over over Nazi Germany. Um, yeah, that it seemed to be part of a more complex story. You know, one perhaps that you know we've touched on when talking about Jacques Vallée's work. You know, it, it didn't fit into a neat narrative. In fact, none of this stuff fits into a neat narrative, which is why I think it's so endlessly beguiling. But you know, there there, there were certain I think things that I could tie off. And and one of them was that the Germans did not develop flying saucers, period. Yeah. It just... No, that's fine. I mean, we know the rumors about the Hanebu and what what are they called? There's so many crafts that are rumored yeah. that... There are lots and, and yeah. exactly, you know, and they took them down to the Antarctic and, you know, all of that stuff. I, yeah. Just... Yeah. No, I mean, most of that stuff it has come out after the war, and many of those sources are from uh, neo-Nazi sources. In other words, it's not neutral. Uh, it may have an agenda. It may be disinfo. It may be uh, exaggerated stuff, etc. But that's not my point, that they had it. My point is that Hitler must have known about this research, and he must have hoped to the very last that there will be some kind of breakthrough where this can be weaponized, oh, okay. not even just talking about UFOs, because if you are researching exotic energy, obviously you're automatically also touching potential weaponry. Yeah. That's the first, even, you know, the Americans, the Russians, the Germans, all of them, even though you could you probably use this for benevolent um, aims and, and it could probably lift civilization. That's not what they're thinking about. The first thing they go to is weaponization. And so if Hitler was in, uh, informed, I don't know how, how updated or informed he was. I don't know if you discovered something about this. But Kummler, uh, in order to be able to continue this research, he must have given positive, once in a while positive reports. Yeah, we're on the verge of breakthrough. Yeah, yeah. Just let us continue. And so that would feed their, the, Chiefs hope that something of this could be used to to push back on the Allies. That's my thinking. Comment? Yeah. I mean, in, in the sources that exist for um, Hitler's uh, sort of um, clinging to the thought that there might be, you know, a wonder weapon at the end of the war, which yeah. would bring victory to the Germans at the very last minute, mm. seems to be rooted in some uh, conversations with a number of people. And those are documented in uh, various books, I mean, and diaries. I mean, Goebbels is one of them. Mm -hmm. um, but, and I guess in a sense, you know, this- Goebbels? How would he know anything? Well, he, well, I mean, aside from being, well, what I mean is these people were talking in their diaries about the mentions to them by- uh, leading officials, maybe Kamler amongst them, mm -hmm. maybe Speer, the armaments minister, maybe senior generals and so forth. What I'm saying is, is that Goebbels was one of the people who in his diary documented the fact that these weapons were being talked about wow. by high-end wow. officials. So on the one hand, there is evidence to say that Hitler was 
leaning on or counting on the emergence of a secret wonder weapon that would bring him victory at the 11th hour. Hmm. But as we know, they didn't materialize. So what happened to them? Hmm. Um, and this, in a sense, to, for me, brings me on to the sort of the enigma of the bell, hmm. because I like and respect Igor Vitkovsky very much. And he was very generous in giving of his time to take me to see the facility at the Wenceslas mine, uh, where, you know, this uh, device was allegedly uh, being experimented upon. Uh, to my mind, some years after the uh, those 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 visits, it, it's pretty clear to me that this was to do with the German atomic weapons program, the SS run secret atomic bomb program, rather than it being to do with any anti-gravity uh, investigation per se. Now, it may well have No, well, hang on, hang on. Just so we don't misunderstand. Are you saying that the hopes of the leadership was referring to the atomic bomb and not the exotic stuff? Or are you saying that what they what went on in the Kamler zones was the atomic research and not the Bell research? It's well, it's not really an either or. It is mm. that in Kamala's kingdom, which was vast and mm. comprised many different research facilities, all of which, by the way, were administered out of a complex in the Czech Republic called called the Skoda Works. Uh, and in that complex, there was a, a, a secret special projects division set up by Kamala, which administered all of these different complexes and individual projects there wasn't just one project there were loads of different uh mm. weapons programs they're mm. ranging from missile systems like the v2 rocket through to the atomic bomb and other stuff mm. so what i'm saying is is that um when it comes to hitler's uh evident uh clinging to the belief that there may have been a secret weapon to save them, uh, I, I have no idea because no one ever makes mention really of what that secret weapon mm. was. But it, it it would be more consistent, I think, with the facts, certainly as I found them, that this would have been to do with an atomic bomb rather than some form of exotic uh, propulsion yeah. device. Yeah, because nothing can compare to the destruction of an atomic bomb anyway. So. Yeah. And and we know there were plans actually to nuke America. <laughs> That's come out in the open too. Yeah. German plans. So Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah but yeah. I was I was just touching on the bell mm -hmm. and uh, to my mind that is associated with a, a, an SS run atomic weapons program more than it is an exotic energy propulsion source. It may have had some spin-off effect into kind of you know exotic energy and propulsion but i did i do not think that that was its primary purpose i think it was probably no. some kind of uh you know centrifuge or sort of um uh separation device for uh nuclear uh, material you know i mean i think i don't know by the way but that's what it seems to point to yeah rather more than it being associated exclusively with an exotic energy or or propulsion 
research uh, program. No, I agree because there is no evidence that, you know, there were these rumors that uh, there was crashed UFOs in Germany and they tried to back engineer it and some explain the bell and the, or the wonder weapon stuff like that. But there's no evidence of that. What there is evidence of is a provenance of earth technology uh, the transistor, I, I think, goes back to the 20s, 30s. You can actually track, and Dr. Farrell has done this, a development, especially in German science, where you could end up with free energy and anti-gravity without having to have uh, alien crafts as your starting point. So I'm just saying that's possible. Obviously, neither you nor me knows. But I agree that it's more logical to... Uh, you know, Occam's Racer at least. But th- that's the point. So they are researching the nuclear stuff. We know this and it's so much evidence now. But precisely because of that, and then they discover, wow, we had stuff going on here. Yeah. And then you have circumstantial evidence that would have to be explained away. I- I'll throw a couple to you and see what you think of that. Okay. First, you have the name of the bell. Uh, uh, when they go specifically into the bell, Project Kronos, already there. This, and uh, they did as the Americans and English and everyone have done always. They make code names that kind of give away part of the stuff if you're in the know. Uh, then you have the very interesting facts. If you look at the Bell scientists, one of them end up in, and he's he's not even competent for that kind of work, but he end up in the American uh, Moon program. Not even talking about Werner von Braun here. I think it's Kurt Debus or one of those guys. Okay. Another one end up in the much more, you know, there's not enough evidence for the Antarctica thing, but there's plenty of evidence for the South American thing. And then you have the guy who ends up with uh, uh, Mr. Perron and uh, uh, in Humal Island or however you pronounce it where they do uh, research what in the white they define as cold fusion so obviously there are and that's just a couple of examples there are if you look at the bell scientists and and some aspects of the bell research you see that there are anomalies that go far beyond the nuclear stuff well, there are there are certainly anomalies about it, but as back in the I, mean, I haven't looked at the bell for I mean really since I went on that on that that trip with Igor many years ago. Mm. But I remember then when he was telling me about the research that he'd undertaken and the research that I did sort of on the side at that time to look into the bell. That it's not cut and dried. That it's there's a lot of very unclear, sort of you know woolly data, um, inevitably, sort of made made less clear by the fact that all of this stuff was happening in the chaos of the collapse of Nazi Germany in 1944 and 1945. Um, What is clear, as you say, is that a lot of German-derived nuclear expertise went to other parts of the world, um, and not the least of which was was Argentina mm. but to pin that to the bell uh, you know again I'm you know, others might be happy to do that mm. um, uh, I don't have enough of that background to be able to do that to my satisfaction mm. I guess is what I'm saying 
Yeah, fair enough. No problem. So now I ask you to take on your speculation hat. Okay, I know uh, academics and and real journalists don't like to do that, but this is an entertainment show anyway. It's not. <laughs> it's not. Sure. As, well, let's have some fun. Yeah, let's have some fun. So, where do you think Mr. Kamler ended up? Oh well, I know where Mr. Kamler ended up. Oh wow! It was, um, just uh, just after I finished writing the Hunt for Zero Point. I got together with three other researchers, well, actually two to begin with, um, a chap called Keith Chester and then a guy called Dr. Colm Lowry. And we decided that between us, we wanted to go and find out what had happened to Hans Kammler. Nice. So for a, for a few years, I joined them in researching the Kammler story. Mm-hmm. And just as we... Uh, well, actually, my colleague Keith Chester made this amazing breakthrough um, through a non-traditional uh, uh, archive in the States. In fact, it was actually, I think it was in the FBI archives. He eventually found, a uh, through a FOIA request, that uh, Kamler had handed himself in to the Allies, uh, to the Americans at the end of the war. And what Keith had uncovered was a document talking about his 10-month interrogation at the hands of American counterintelligence agents in Germany uh, through to 19, sort of towards the end of 1946. So all of those varying accounts of Kamala's death were what you and I uh, correctly surmised them to be an hour or so ago, which was cover story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that Kamala survived the war. He was debriefed through to the end of 1946. And thereafter, the trail goes cold again. Now, Keith Chester, Colm Lowry, and a chap called Dean Reuter wrote that story up in a book that came out, I think, at the end of 2019 oh, called wow. The Hit called The Hidden Nazi. Uh, It's a very good read. Um, I wasn't involved in the uh, latter uh, stages of the research. I went off to do other things. They uh, wrote the book. It's a very good read. uh, And it tells that whole story of Kamla and, to a large extent, the secret side of the German, the the SS-run atomic weapons program. And I I think uh, many of your... Uh, listeners and subscribers would be interested in that story. Absolutely. I'm interested. I'll talk with you after we're done here and and see if we can get one of them on for that book. Yeah, you should do that. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Uh, Just the fact that the trail went cold and combined with the fact that he was not brought into the paperclip operation tells me that there are more to this story than just atomic stuff if you see what i mean well he was too the problem al was he was too badass you know he <laughs> he, yeah. he was he was a seriously compromised uh unpleasant individual who had you know he'd suborned um slave labor to dig out his underground secret weapons complexes and was a tarnished individual. You know, a lot of Nazis, as we know, could ended up getting airbrushed, you know, at the end of the war. Um, you know, von Braun, Werner von Braun was one of them. Mm-hmm. But Kamler was too far gone, 
to be sanitized by the authorities. So they had to keep him secret. Uh, and I strongly suspect, you know, I, I don't know. I don't in the end know how uh, Keith Chester, Colm Lowry and Dean Reuter uh, accounted for his final whereabouts. But I suspect that, you know, Kamla was probably after his 10-month debrief and interrogation was quietly disposed of by the Americans because he was just too too dangerous, too tainted, too compromised to be allowed to to live. New, new identity. Well, it's possible. It, it's It's really possible. And I think that's, it's endlessly intriguing. And of course, we'll I mean, I hope we do find out yeah. what ultimately happened to him. Mm. But of course, it's, it's, I think it's a fairly binary proposition. He was either liquidated after his 10-month interrogation or he was allowed to head off into, uh, you know, the, the distance somewhere under a new identity. So mm. Uh, mm. for the moment, that jury is out. And, uh, but it's an important uh, jury question because if he was given a new identity or actually there is a third option that he, he was let loose and ended up in Argentina. But no matter if he lived on, someone would exploit him for his knowledge. And um, that means his dark heritage would live on uh, one way or the other. Well, yeah. yes and no, I think. I mean, in that, bear in mind, Kamala was not... He wasn't a scientist. He wasn't an ah, good point. Uh, wasn't an engineer mm. in the sense that we are thinking of, of engineers and, and talking about them in the context of this show. Mm. He was an administrator. He was a guy who knew where the bodies were buried, metaphorically speaking. Mm. He knew where the technology was. He knew who the technologists were. Um, he knew the plans. He knew the big plan. But he wasn't the guy who you know, was, you know, like Oppenheimer, you know, the, mm. the, 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 uh, the head engineer behind the American atomic weapons program. He didn't have that scientific knowledge, but he was an administrator. And I think, therefore, after a period of 10 months, you could legitimately say that the Americans had milked him yeah. for all of his knowledge. Mm. And thereafter, he just was no longer useful, which is why the sort of the liquidation aspect comes to mind for me because at that point he had ceased to become useful anymore you're right uh, now i'm thinking the more logical thing would be to liquidate him because they would be terrified at any of this treasure trove of information that they squeezed him for for a whole range of 10 months that's a long time man yeah. i mean you, you you'll give most people will be able to give the life story many times over in that span so they wouldn't want any of that to end up to the soviets so yeah uh, I, I do think maybe. But then again, there's reports that he popped up in NASA in um, Clark McClellan claims this together with uh, um, Gestapo Mueller and a third guy. I forgot who was this. All right. Reports he was in Argentina. We we just don't know. Uh, we, we press for time. Two more questions and, and then we wrap it up with your book. That's fine. So what would you say uh, is the best evidence in your book for anti-gravity and or free energy well i suppose i'd cite in a way john hutchison in the end i mean because i i used two sets of sources i mean there was john himself and actually three sets i used john himself i then used the canadian engineer a guy called george hathaway 
who evaluated his equipment uh, and his effect uh, in a series of benchtop experiments. And then there was a guy called Colonel John Alexander who ran the Pentagon team, which had evaluated John's work. And whilst they all slightly differed on where the effect was coming from, uh, they all attested to the fact that there was an effect um, and it was kind of inexplicable. And although it wasn't as impressive as, you know, walking into a hangar somewhere in, in the <laughs> desert and finding a flying saucer, mm -hmm. um, in terms of a wrap, a kind of completion for the journey, it, to my mind, it was quite a satisfying one because it said that um, there are physical effects that are manifest in our environment, which we cannot yet account for um, definitively or scientifically. And actually that's, for me as a sort of curious individual, that's a great way to end because if I could neatly wrap all of this stuff up, mm. stuff up as explicable, you know, it wouldn't leave much room for curiosity and sort of onward investigation. So it kind of wrapped the narrative, but it left open this idea that we live in a, a, a world where physics and our understanding of science is not carved in stone and it is evolving. And I think that, you know, we're in for a pretty exciting period ahead as all the indications are that there are new physics to be discovered, new physics to be understood. And in the context of some of this stuff, like, you know, the, uh, the, the Tic Tac uh, UFO sighting that has got the US Navy so exercised at the moment, you know, I, I think that's quite profound. I think it's quite an exciting point in our lives to be uh, to be looking at science all over again hmm. now obviously you're a layman right like me when it comes to the geeky stuff the technology part of this but according to your understanding the best of your understanding how would you explain how this technology works <laughs> well <laughs> I know it's impossible, but try. Uh, I think because we don't know what, quotes the technology is, it, it, it is very hard to answer that. But I will say that, you know, the, the reason the book is called The Hunt for Zero Point is because it actually makes a nod to an even deeper substrate of physics um, that may hold the clue to our understanding of gravity. Uh, gravity is probably the most elusive of the fundamental forces. Um, we know what it does. We don't know uh, uh, how it is caused beyond the fact that large bodies, you know, whether they happen to be a planet or, or, or something smaller, exert a gravitational force. The reasons for that gravitational force are not well understood. Now, my, my hunch has to do with rotation. The Earth is rotating. Well, I'm sure that's as valid <laughs> as any other, Al. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I went to speak to uh, Hal Puddoff, for example, who's mm -hmm. kind of integral to all of this stuff, mm -hmm. you know, Hal is a very credentialed uh, physicist and was deeply involved uh, 25, 30 years ago at a time when no other scientists were in what is called the zero point energy field, um, which is, uh, as I say, where the book the Hump Zero Point gets its title from, which attests to a substrate of reality, a substrate of physics uh, made up of 
virtual particles, tiny particles that blink in and out of existence. We don't know where they go when they blink out of existence. They are virtual particles because they are fleeting. They are, are only in the real world, quotes, for a very short period of time. But I think in, in, in that zero point field, um, explored so bravely by people like Putoff and others 30 or 40 years ago, that we are going to find secrets in science that are going to yield a whole new understanding of the world in which we live. And I think that, for me, is pretty exciting prospect. Mm, mm, mm. Well put. Okay, final, finally, uh, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you. I'm going to try to squeeze you for speculation here that you may not be comfortable with, but I, I have to try. Do your worst. <laughs> <laughs> so it, let's say they have developed some kind of machine or, or craft or, or tool based on anti-gravity and or free energy now what do you imagine they would be able to do with that today do you think for example they're using it they could be using it f already traveling uh, amongst the stars <laughs> well uh, uh okay that is the subject of another two-hour show <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, and all I will say is that, so, you know, I, I left the whole sort of anti-gravity thing behind with the publication. The, actually, the US uh, edition came out in 2002, um, I think. And I really left that all alone for a very long time. And then about sort of five years ago, I guess, maybe a bit, bit longer, I decided I wanted to get back into writing again. So, I, I came up with a, uh, a concept for a thriller, which came out in, at the end of 2019 called The Grid. Mm. And The Grid it kind of takes that question that you posed just mm. there. And it, it looks at some of the spin-offs that you get from exploring very esoteric aspects of physics. Mm. And one of the things that it led me into was consciousness. And consciousness is an endlessly fascinating topic, but which takes us into, uh, I think, some very uh, key areas that the military and the intelligence communities of uh, not just America, but China and Russia particularly, are now deeply interested in. And we've just uh, emerged, uh, we are still in an era of uh, post-truth. But where do you go after you have uh, manipulated elections, after you have, uh, you know, played around with the knowledge that you can get about an individual from the clicks that they mm. conduct on Facebook and other aspects of their online lives to uh, these guys, you know, intelligence agencies really know more about us than we do. Mm. And I take that whole theme of taboo forbidden science and and go forward in what i hope is a realistic format and speculate on that very question you know what these agencies are doing with exotic physics and um like i say that's probably the subject of another two-hour discussion yeah yeah, but clever to put it in a novel form, uh, to use fiction as... Uh, I mean, that's the, that's the last resort for most people who know too much. Anyway, it's it's a age-old uh, technique. Now, you have you mentioned that book. Uh, you said it was called The Grid. 
Yeah. Yeah, because I, when I look at your books, I don't think uh, Amazon, at least, gives a very complete... How many books have you committed? Well, I've written, uh, let's think, uh, I've written about six of my own, and I've probably written about 15 for other people, because in my... Um, You're a ghostwriter. In my shadow years, I was a ghostwriter, yeah. Wow. So I, wrote, I wrote for other people as well. I see. Well, not all of them are popping up. Uh, do you have like a website yeah. or anywhere people can go to get your stuff? I, I do indeed. It's uh, cook all one word, dot works, W-O-R-K-S. Dot works, I see, I see. Uh, you haven't been interviewed by, actually, you sh- you know, a show you should be on, but uh, it's not up to you, uh, so, but that would be Joe Rogan. He would love the contents of your work. He alone has single-handedly contributed to this new renaissance where you can talk about these things. I mean, yeah, Tom DeLong, uh, probably the trigger, but... Uh, Joe Rogan has, uh, well, I'm not to talk about that now. We don't have time, but that's a show you should be on. But yeah, I've enjoyed his stuff very much. I mean, I've I've dipped into his his show and and it, I've enjoyed it. So uh, yeah, we'll... you talk about Rogan, all right? Joe Rogan, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what about Richard Dolan? Has he interviewed you? No, uh, he's not. Again, I admire his work as well. Um, so uh, yeah, if if they came calling, I'd be very happy to uh, to uh, to do interviews with them. That would be good. Yeah, and uh, you could come back later when the second book is out, and we do a consciousness show. Okay, that's fine. Yes, let's do that. Yeah. Um, and just just to be clear, that book is already out. It's not coming out. Oh, it is. It's all. Yeah. It's all. Okay. What what's the name again? Let me check it out. The Grid. Um, it's published here in the UK and also in the Netherlands as The Grid right Uh, what about America half our listeners are American yeah not yet in America but it's available in the States through I mean my publisher is Penguin so they do have a presence there but it hasn't formally been published in the US yet. but I mean I can go to Amazon and get it so yeah yeah for sure Mm. yeah absolutely yeah Amazon is taking over everything anyway. It certainly is. <laughs> anyway, hey, I, I, I want to ask you one thing. There's a, this British UFO guy, he used to work in the military. Uh, what's his name again? The same the same one. Which one? A British guy who... who uh, he's like big... John Searle? No. no, big on UFOs. He's not an inventor. He's a reporter. He's like a UFO researcher. But he used to work for British military or British intelligence. I forgot his name. Are you very, talk, very, talking about the guy who's, who's done uh, a report on Tic Tac and stuff? Well, he's been, a, he's been doing stuff far before Tic Tac. He's probably yeah. done Tic Tac too, but he's, he's probably the most well-known UFO guy don't, from Britain. Uh, yeah, I don't know who that is. I think you know him. Uh, he has a short name. Um, kind of like you, through his work, he got aware of... He's, he's not just written a paper for the uh, the Israelis, is he? The Begin Sadat Center for Strategic Studies. What? There's a guy called Frank Milburn. No, not him, no. no I don't know who it is then. Okay, I'll have to get back to you. But you know who he is. He's like the UFO guy in England. Okay. Yeah, and he's been that for oh, 20 uh, years. Oh, Nick Nick Pope. There you go, Nick Pope. Nick Pope, yeah. He used to work for the MOD. I, I, I met him years and years and years ago, but yeah, I know who you mean, Nick Pope. Yeah. Wow, okay, cool. By the way, another chap you should, uh, and I can facilitate that, uh, it's Alex Sakiris of Skeptico. Despite the name, 
Uh, it's uh, it's one of the most popular shows on consciousness. Uh, it really refers to the ancient Greek and not not the knee jerk pseudo skeptics of today. And that guy, he has everyone on for uh, every scholar you can think of. I mean, it's all about consciousness. Right. He's even had on Jacques Vallée, but he's had on anybody, everybody who is someone within science uh, and academia, not just for. Uh, it's not mainly UFO shows, but he does a lot of that lately, but also about consciousness. He's big on that. And so uh, something tells me you would be a good guest for his show. Well, that'd be great. Yeah, I'd, I'd be um, very grateful. Thank you for that. Because then you reach... The thing is that, especially today, I don't know how much you know about new media, but it's being stifled left and right. And Everything you can write about has an audience. That's not the problem. The problem is actually reaching them. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the target audience. Uh, I've been into marketing, so so I'm not just talking out of my behind. So I think for your, you and the consciousness book, his show is more optimal than mine. I mean, mine too is good, but his is even more optimal. Perfect. For this book, his show is not that optimal. Mine is. But uh, why uh, pick and choose if you can have both? <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, I, I'd be, you know, um, delighted to uh, to talk to uh, to them, and also delighted to talk to you about it. Hmm. Consciousness is sort of definitely where I am at the moment. So, uh, and and any and all discussions on it are endlessly fascinating to me. So that would be good. Too. So let's make a deal. You put me in touch with the hidden Nazis guy, and I'll put you in touch with the skeptical. <laughs> Done. Okay, okay, but anyway, I'll let you go now. Well, look, so I wish you the best of luck in in uh, these COVID times. Yeah, you too, Al. We have an Easter break here, so it is Good Friday today. I don't know whether that's an Easter break. Are you in Sweden or are you in Norway? Yeah, Norway. Norway. Hmm. So uh, yeah, we have uh, we have three or four days off here, which is very pleasant. And uh, <laughs> would you would you notice if if not? I mean, due to the lockdowns and everything. <laughs> well, we've, we're starting to be released from ours. We beginning oh. of this week, we have been allowed out, albeit in limited uh, limited capacity. But right, we right. are uh, we're now allowed out into the great wide open, which is inducing no end of agoraphobia on the part of uh, myself and. <laughs> My uh, my fellow my compatriots, but um, yeah, you, you know what we call the new wave of COVID here? What the English? Is it the English COVID or something? Yeah, you you are being blamed for the new. Allegedly, the new version is more lethal. I don't know, but yeah, that's what uh, we call the English. It actually originated in a corner of Kent which is the bit that sticks out at the bottom of, of, of England. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we are, we are to blame. Uh, us, the South Africans and the Brazilians, of course. Right, right. Yeah, and we blame you already in football. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, here's how this works. It's going to rest for a while in the pending editing uh, queue. Uh, when uh, it's done, eventually, probably four months from now, Okay. It will be flushed out to the public, and then I'll send you the, a link you can share on social media, etc. Brilliant. Mm. That would be really great. Thanks again, uh, and we'll uh, we'll stay in touch. Mm -hmm. I'll give you the name of. Um, I'll put you in touch with Keith uh, Coleman. Yeah. Dean. Yeah. Okay. Sounds great, Nick. That's it. What we have time for today. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on, being a good sport, and, and sharing with us.
Well, thanks, Al. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, it's been a great couple of hours of discussion. Thank you for having me on the show. Mm. Okay. All right. Uh, enjoy your, your certain spare time. I'll look forward to it. Great, great, to, uh, great to meet you. Take care. Ditto, bro. Okay, cheers. Bye. That concludes the forum for today. Now, I am going to share with you an intriguing piece of information. But before that, I have to drill my drum again. Get you zombies to subscribe. Obviously, I'm not referring to you guys who already subscribe. You're wide awake. But you need to support us, folks. If you don't want to throw us a coin, at least subscribe. And look... You know YouTube has several algorithms. From the corporate algorithm to the hobo algorithm. And we are at the worst. We are at the bottom algorithm. And you know what that means? That means that we are due for deletion. We don't know when, but they always flush out those at the bottom. And so we have 40,000 subscribers today on our YouTube channel, but we are not exposed to more than, well, new videos get about, after a few days, just maybe 5,000 views. Whereas there's channels with 10,000, 15,000 subscribers who get even more views than they have subscribers, like we used to do. I mean, uh, our first YouTube programs had 10 times more views than what we get today and we're exposed to many more people but of course that was back in the day when youtube was free and fair and merit counted and not rigged like it's now so the only way to to counter the rigging is for those of you who listen to us to make sure you're subscribing not just on youtube but also on other outlets because when the day come that we're gone you will still have access to us. For example, on Odyssey, where everything on YouTube is is mirrored, or you can go to any podcast platform you choose. You don't have to go to Podbean, where which is hosting us, because we are on everyone. So whichever you usually use, find us there and sub there. It's tremendous help, and I, I'm not going to waste time and bore you explaining how and why. So that's that. Just do it. <laughs> and now, we did discuss today the dilemma between, you know, are these spacecrafts, if they are spacecrafts, are they terrestrial produced or are they extraterrestrial? Doesn't mean it's not human if they're extraterrestrial, by the way. And we also mentioned uh, Jacques Vallée, one of thousands legions in the field that Nick personally knows. And so I'm going to read to you something from Jacques Vallée's classic, Messengers of Deception, You for Contacts and Cults. Because this little piece called There Are Too Many Landings is part of his analysis, Jack's analysis, showing that this phenomenon is not as simple as it appears. And you know our position, we are fully behind the scenario that there are spacecrafts out there, whether they have origined from a natural human technology, as we've shown in many shows, you don't have to go by back engineering crash retrievals, which is also a possibility, of course. 
But there is a human history of an unnatural development of this technology prior to World War II. Uh, but that said, it doesn't even have to be either or. It could be a case of both and. And we also discussed the consciousness aspect. We mentioned it today with Nick, but in this crazy old world we live in, that is also relevant to, to this. And by the way, check out our show on Egregorus, where we also touch uh, a tangent to this. Now, Jacques Vallée doesn't conclude anything. I mean, he's a scientist, so he wouldn't anyway. But in this piece, there's no verdict, but it's a very important and interesting aspect that you have to... That one thing I think we can agree upon from this analysis is that we're not talking about random visitors from outer space who is accidentally discovered. So what I'm going to read now can go to support many other types of approaches to understanding the phenomenon. But it's a very important data piece. And I wish I could read what's prior and after, but this isn't an audiobook. So let this little segment suffice. And by the way, this book is from 1979. So obviously the cases and the numbers is incredibly increased compared to them. There are too many landings. The first argument against the idea of flying saucers as spacecraft lies, oddly enough, in the large number of verified, unexplained sightings. In my own files, I currently have approximately 2,000 cases of close encounters from every country on Earth, many of them involving occupants of various sizes and shapes. It may seem that 2,000 cases in some 20 years is not a very large number, but we are talking only about the cases that were actually reported and verified. It is possible to calculate how many landings this represents if, as the contactees claim, UFOs are spacecraft whose occupants happened to be surprised by witnesses who wandered onto the scene uh, as the craft was being repaired or as the crew was conducting some exploration of our planet. To make this estimation, we must take into account three factors. The time of the sighting, the probability that it will be reported, and the place of the event. Most landings are reported to take place after 6 p.m. For you Europeans, that's 18 o'clock. The frequency distributions that my computer studies have disclosed for every continent show this activity peaking at about 10.30 p.m. or 22.30, decreasing sharply after that time and increasing again just before dawn. There are few reports after 6 a.m., that's 6 in the morning. What could this mean? That the activity of the objects is nocturnal by nature and by choice. Then, why do the reports decrease in frequency around midnight? Simply because people go to bed. After 10.30pm, the number of potential witnesses is severely reduced. Then let us ask the question, how many reports would we have if people did not go to bed but stayed outside to watch these so-called spacecrafts? The answer is about 30,000 we would have to multiply the number of cases by a factor of 15. 
Now, this last figure does not begin to approximate the actual number of events, because we know from many independent studies that only one case in 10 ever gets reported. Then we should have not 30,000, but 300,000 cases in our files. But this still isn't the whole story. Most landings occur in unpopulated areas, away from dwellings. The detailed statistics upon which these conclusions are based are beyond the scope of this book. They will be found in, in the book Basic Patterns of the UFO Phenomenon of Poher and Valet. Now, if the Earth's population were distributed evenly instead of being concentrated in city areas, how many reports would we have? Again, taking a conservative multiplying factor of 10 leads us to the staggering conclusion that the UFOs, if they are spacecrafts engaged in a general survey of our planet, must have landed here no fewer than 3 million times in two decades. This is one of the little recognized facts of the UFO problem that any theory has yet to explain. The theory of random visitation does not explain it. Either the UFOs select their witnesses, or they are something entirely different from space vehicles. In either case, their appearances are staged. And by the way, again, it may not be an either-or. That's it. Thanks for hanging in there and for liking, sharing, commenting and subscribing. Thanks to your support. Thanks to my team. I've been your host, Al. Sincerely signing off. Be seeing you. Number one.